When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read more books like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through the Google form included in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access digital early reads and pre-pub author chats as well as my new Traveling Galley program. For May, my early read selection is Banyan Moon by Tao Tai. For June, The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman. And for July, The Book of Silver Linings by Nan Fisher. The link to join is in my show notes. Today, I'm chatting with Ava Chin about Mott Street, a Chinese-American family story of exclusion and homecoming. Ava is a fifth-generation New Yorker and is the author of Eating Wildly, Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and many other publications. An associate professor of creative nonfiction at the City University of New York, she lives in Manhattan with her husband and her daughter. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Ava. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. It's so good to be here with you, Cindy. I'm so glad you're here. I really, really enjoyed your book, and I cannot wait to talk about it. Great. So before we dive into my questions, would you just give me a quick synopsis of Mott Street, please? Sure. So Mott Street is a nonfiction book about the impact of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws on four generations of my family as they arrived and lived in the American West. And then we're forced to do a kind of reverse migration across the country and then eventually landed in the same tenement apartment building in the heart of New York's Chinatown on Mott Street. It's also about my journey to understand my family and how I uncovered so much more. Well, I thought all of that was fascinating. And I really liked how you wove in your personal account with your family's account. But before we go into all of that, 
I was not super familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act, and so I thought it would be great if you could give a quick summary for those that also won't be familiar. After reading your book, I understand it, but I just thought it might help listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So the Chinese Exclusion Act laws were our country's first, longest-running, and most restrictive immigration acts that we've ever had. They started in 1882 and were on the books until 1943, which is when the U.S. entered World War II and we needed China as an ally. And so what they were was this immigration act that effectively halted legal Chinese immigration into the country and blocked a pathway towards our citizenship for over 60 years. They're also important because they set the tone for future immigration policies going forward. So that by 1924, almost all Asians were banned and there were restrictions against Southern and Eastern Europeans as well. One of the things you tackle in this book is the impact of the Chinese Exclusion Act on what it means to be Chinese in America. Yes. So talk a little bit about that. I know that's a very broad thing and you talk about it a fair amount in the book, but the overarching theme. Yeah. So what I try to do is to look at the ways in which discriminatory legislation from the 19th century impacted real people on the ground. And I'm lucky because I'm a fifth-generation Chinese-American, and my family members have been here for so long that I was able, I have a cast of characters that I can tell that story through. And I also am a proud descendant of a Chinese railroad worker um, who helped build the apparatus that helped to unite the country after the Civil War. Because I'm the proud descendant of a railroad worker who heard all of these stories from my family members, one of the things that shocked me when I was growing up was when I was in school, I did not see this history and these stories reflected back in the lessons that I learned. And so I thought, this doesn't make any sense, right? There's like this gaping hole here. And at the same token, you didn't, when I was growing up, you almost never saw Asian American actors on TV and certainly not playing the lead roles. The lead roles for, of Asian characters were often played in, I guess, what you call yellow face by white men or women. So there was a way in which all of this to me was very mystifying and pointed to a certain kind of erasure that I might not have been able to articulate back then. But the, the great shadow of this was all around us. And it took me, I think, until I was in college before I actually ever heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws. What I, I saw in my own family, though, were the ways in which all of those, those little clues were all around us. So there was a kind of a, a, a pressured way of living there were secrets that were kept within the family uh, because you didn't want, you know, grandpa or anybody else to get deported. So you didn't want to put family members at risk. And this all went back to the Chinese Exclusion Act laws. One of the things that really stuck with me since I read your book was how you knew these family stories about your great grandfather, great great grandfather working on the railroad. And then you're sitting in class and you open up your history book. And there's no depiction of any Chinese people. It's all white men. And you're like, wait a minute, I know this story and I personally know it. I have a family connection. 
However, that's not what's being depicted in my book. I thought that was sad and interesting, but also super relevant to everything that's going on right now with book banning and and all of these legislatures trying to legislate what's being taught and what can't be taught. And I thought it's very relevant for today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes we talk about these things or we used to talk about these things as being a kind of culture war. And there could be like a certain line of thinking among certain people where they think, oh, well, you know, it's not really important. But in fact, it's very important. Who gets to tell the story? Whose story gets out there, right? Um, Whose story do we listen to and then watch on, you know, however you watch your media, right? These things help to define us as a country. And, you know, one of the things that this book tries to do is to go back to that period in time in which our very young nation was asking itself, who is an American and who is not? Who is one of us and who is not? And the decisions that were made back then in the 19th century set us on a course as a country towards viewing all Asians as being forever foreign and suspicious. And so so that was one of the great things that I didn't anticipate that I would be able to, you know, uncover the history of this. And so I, I feel like enormously grateful for, for this path that I was able to go on with the book. Well, you lead me right into my next question, which is your research. I know from reading the acknowledgments and the end of the book and your bibliography, how much research you did, but I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. I zigzagged my way across the country looking for files on all of my family members. Under the Chinese Exclusion Act period, there were files on all of the family members, particularly um, the files were renewed whenever they left the country in order for them to be able to get back in. So it really, Chinese Exclusion, that period was the very first time our borders, our national borders, were really heavily scrutinized during a period of time in which we were not in in a time of war, right? So I zigzagged my way across the country trying to find these documents in national archives in different cities, both on the East and the West Coast. And I also went to China as a Fulbrighter when I brought my family there. And I did research in our, our villages in the Southern part of China. And one of the fascinating things that I discovered in my uh, domestic research was that the railroad worker in our family, he ended up living in this country for almost three decades, almost 30 years. And he settled after the railroad was completed. He settled in Boise, Idaho, um, because as my family had told me, there were lots of Chinese miners living in there after the completion of the railroad. They were railroad workers, and then they became miners, right? He lived there during a period in time in which the state population of Idaho was almost 30% Chinese. The idea that there were so many Chinese people really shocked me. I was very surprised about this, right? But the effects of discriminatory legislation, anti-Chinese pushing out, these what you could kind of consider a pogrom, these effectively changed our numbers. Other things that I discovered were, so there was a white woman who married into our family. 
Her name was Aunt Elva. And Aunt Elva, maybe about three years after marrying our uncle, discovered years later that her citizenship was revoked by the U.S. government because this was a period in time in which the government saw a woman's citizenship as reflecting that of her husband's. So a couple of years after they got married, in the eyes of the law, Aunt Elva, who was born and raised in New Jersey, the daughter of a Civil War veteran, in the eyes of the law after marrying our uncle, she became a Chinese. I just could not believe that she had her citizenship revoked just because she married somebody who was Chinese-American. I found that just appalling. And backing up a little bit to what you were talking about with Idaho, I also found it so appalling that these people were literally run out of town, not just in Idaho, but various places. I mean, people showing up their doorsteps screaming, leave. How terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It, it still has impact on many of these towns today. I can go to some of these places and there were very few people of color living there and almost no Chinese. So it's almost like you throw something in the well and you hear, you hear the echoes and the resonance of it, you know, but these echoes and resonances occur, you know, over a hundred years later. One thing I should probably say, and, and, and this kind of brings us back to today, one of the things that's so interesting to me, but also really sobering is that, you know, we could look at the rise in anti-Asian violence and hatred that's happening today as something that, you know, happened under the pandemic, you know, after how many years of a certain, um, our last president's rhetoric. We can look at that as seeing as, as something that is contemporary and new. But in fact, the roots of the anti-Asian violence go all the way back to the 19th century, during this period when Chinese people were pushed out, and a period in which you know, this sentiment, this overwhelming discriminatory sentiment made its way and was very popular, by the way, made its way into our general legislation and the ways that in which we treat foreigners, right? Or people who we believe perceive to be foreign and not American. And so, you know, I, I sometimes folks ask me, well, um, you know, what's the correlation between what's happening today and the past? And, you know, how do you feel about it? And, you know, I, I think sometimes it surprises people when, you know, I talk about the fact that, you know, this really does go back to the 19th century and that the roots of the violence go all the way back to, to that period in time. And I think that's very sobering. I think it also helps understand a little better where the hate is based, not that it's, it's acceptable, but the fact that it has been here for so long that it's not something that just came on is what I'm trying to say. But also it makes you wonder how you fix it. Yeah. You know, so I think it really does go back to the story. Like whose story do we hear? You know, whose story do we get to follow? And so I was really interested in who are these different characters, right? So like, sorry, in the 19th century, I was reading newspaper articles where so many Chinese miners were being attacked, sometimes in their sleep, you know? And so, for example, I had a family member who did get run out of town, right? And had to make a decision. Where was he going to go next? 
was he going to go back home to China, which is what people wanted to, you know, the, his neighbors, um, his racist neighbors wanted him to do? Or was he going to go on, right? And some of my family members went on to New York. So just sort of dialing back a little bit, I think it really matters, you know, whose story we get to hear about, right? When nameless, faceless people get attacked, we, and we don't get to hear anything from them about what their hopes and desires were, why they were here, how they were trying to just make money and survive and send it back home to their families, what, what their dreams were for coming to America in the first place. When we don't get to hear those stories, it's so easy to think that, oh, well, that person's not important or people who look like that aren't important, right? I think the job of writers really is, and storytellers, is really to bring those stories to life so that we understand, oh, this is a living, breathing person, you know, just like you and me, right, that had hopes and dreams and desires. So, so that was really, I think, probably the great aim of this book was to elucidate and illuminate those stories, those individual stories, and to place Asian Americans into our proper space in the larger American story. And the fact that Asian Americans have been here for a very long time and had so many wonderful contributions. Yes, absolutely. As you know, as I mentioned it, my family has been here since the 19th century, working on, you know, the railroad that the entire country benefited from and still does, by the way. I went on a, a trip with my family and we saw the places where the railroad still exists and the train still runs across the tracks. So, so it, it, there's something about actually seeing this living history that is so wonderful and so delightful. And it really is something that is such a great pleasure to be able to share it with readers, but it's also really a pleasure to be able to share it with my family, with my daughter and the next generation. I love that. I really enjoyed that you had so many wonderful photos in the book. And I think that ties in a little bit with what you're already mentioning. The fact that you can put faces with names, see what these people looked like, make them more human. I just loved that you had such a treasure trove of photos. Yeah, I have felt so lucky because when I was younger, I was that kind of annoying little kid that was always asking the adults pestering questions. Who is this person? Who is that person? What were they interested in? What did they do? You know, who are they to you? And, um, you know, if I was lucky, and many times I was, my grandmother or my grandfather and other family members would start talking. And so I've been actually collecting a lot of these stories for a very long time. But it was only as an adult that I started digging into the historical record. And what I uncovered was that because of Chinese exclusion, by necessity, keep in order to get in and to stay here, Chinese people had to, by necessity again, come up with stories, oftentimes that were fabricated, just to remain. And so what that meant was that the historical record, in English anyway, was often a kind of a fabulous fiction. But it was the oral stories and the family stories that held the keys to the truth. I felt very uneasy 
in the beginning when I started working on these on the story and working through these materials, partially because I thought, well, readers from outside of the community, certain readers might think, oh, well, you know, these people skirted the laws and, you know, that, that, you know, that's not fair, you know, like that kind of mentality. But then I stumbled across um, my grandfather's oral history in a museum. And in his interviews, one of the things he said was, you know, people had to lie in order to get into the country. But if they didn't make the laws the way that they did, people wouldn't have had to lie. So that that framing, I think, helped me to to sort of feel a little bit easier about writing about so many family secrets and and secrets that you know, like these stories are are very common, you know, within our community. Unfortunately, it is unfortunate, but it is wonderful that you were so questioning all of the time and were asking all of your family members about who everybody was and trying to understand their stories. And you mentioned these fictional narratives or the fictional histories. And I thought that was really intriguing, too, that you would look at this piece of paper and be like, who is this man that is attached to my grandfather? Like, you know, who is? I know it's not his father. And then you had to dig into that history. And that must have taken a whole other layer of work. Yeah. Well, you know, in that instance, it really took going to China and visiting our villages and asking questions. And and I don't want to give away too much of the book because, I, you know, I don't want to spoil it for readers. But, you know, they would take one look at the document and go, oh, yeah, that was his uncle. <laughs> you know. I think that's so great. I, I just really thought it was all fascinating. You must have uncovered so many very interesting family stories. Yeah, it was it was an enormous amount of fun. Let's talk about Mott Street, because you wrote at least part of this book at Mott Street, correct? Yes. So our family has been on Mott Street and in this community for over 100 years, since the 1880s. And the building in which they occupied, both sides of my family has lived in the same building continuously for over 100 years. That building that they occupied really feels like, for me, every time I I go in and I visit a cousin or I, I visit friends or extended family members, every time I'm in the building, I feel like I'm reconnecting with my past. It feels like like if the walls could talk, right? I counted 49 family members, at least, who have lived in different apartments in our building on Mott Street. And it, it feels like a real gift because unlike other folks, I don't have to leave the country in order to do my research and to feel connected uh, with my family roots. All I need to do is you know, travel down to New York's Chinatown and, and go to Mott Street. That gave me goosebumps. And every time I thought about you walking in there and all of your ancestors sort of having their hands on you and helping guide your way, it just, it was really chilling in a good way. Thank you. You know, one of the, that's really has been one of the great pleasures of the book was connecting with my heritage and my community and really feeling like the ancestors were pleased, right? If I can go so far as say that. There was a way, a very interesting way in which I've, I often felt that family members were leaving me little breadcrumbs to the story, right? In the form of, I would interview 
uh, friends of the family, right? People who knew the family for, for decades. And my questions would bring up certain memories uh, and people's eyes would light up as they were talking. And then they would remember that in fact, oh, they had letters or, or a file folder filled with, with notes that family members had taken. Or uh, had I read uh, that particular book that was published in the 1930s that was not written by a family member, but um, the writer was like, you know, a friend of family members. And that writer had based so many of his stories on our family stories. And um, these were these were instances that happened over and over again. And it really felt like I was getting close. Like it really felt like the ancestors were placing all of these yummy tidbits in front of me. And and the further I went into the story, I think the more marvelous uh the entire kind of forest of these ancestors really became. They were guiding you. Yes, absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, I know we're on a tight timetable here and I would love to hear what you've read recently and recommend. So can you give me a title or two? Oh, sure. So I am really loving Angie Cruz's How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. I'm also reading Hua Xu's Stay True. And then the, the I read a lot of books all at the same time. I'm one of those kinds of readers. I am too, so I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I probably shouldn't be, but but that that's how it is. I have books everywhere. And I'm also reading Alice Elliott Dark's Fellowship Point. Angie Cruz's book was one of my favorite books of last year, and so many authors recommend it when they come on. It's just such a fabulous story. Cara Romero will stay with me forever. Yes, yes. That voice, yes. right? That distinctive voice. It, you know, it stays in your head and she lives and breathes in your body. She really does. And it just brings that whole Washington Heights area to life. And I just love, love, love that book. I still recommend it all the time to people. Great. Yes. Well, Ava, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This was just such an interesting conversation and I love getting to chat with you. Oh, thank you for having me, Cindy. It's been a total pleasure. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. 
I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.